Podcast. Hold on to your butt. Come on, sucker. Let's get it on. Oh, you want to fight? You want to fight? I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. You don't know anybody named Iris? I don't know nobody named Iris. Can I have a piece of toast? I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Western demands. How could you do this to me? Really, I want to know. Why did you do that? What you feel only matters to you. Step back for one minute and look at the big picture. And that's all. No, no, not for the real fire. The orphans bond a family that very few can understand. Help me. Help you. <laughs> I don't do drugs. Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I am your co-host Iris and I am here with my older brother. Wesley. Today we are reviewing Judas and the Black Messiah. Shaka King, who pitched the movie, said that he considered it The Departed Meets COINTELPRO. The uh, secret organization that the FBI set up or whatever. COINTEL? Uh, Counterintelligence program. Is Hampton a messiah? Or is this just in the artful sense of the word? That we compare Judas and Jesus to these two characters. But is right. he supposed to be considered a messiah figure? I think the title of the film borrows from the monikers that the FBI assigned to various civil and political rights activists at this time, like Martin Luther King was the first black messiah, and, and there were various others, according to the FBI. Listen, I am not the expert on <laughs> civil rights history or this particular, or this story. I have to admit that the majority of the time that I was watching Judas and the Black Messiah, I didn't know how I was supposed to feel. This would have been a film that I would have liked to have gotten Dad's review on before having done it because this took place during his formative years and he in the flesh saw MLK speak. He was in Chicago during the race riots. This is when he was coming into adulthood and this is when everybody felt like America was going to hell in a handbasket. Dad, a Japanese-American, saw Martin Luther King speak in person? He was full on like um, Zacchaeus climbing up onto a tree or on a rooftop or something to get a glimpse of MLK. And then he saw him get hit in the head with a brick. And Martin Luther King Jr. barely flinched, took out his hanky, wiped his head or wherever it was that he got hit and kept marching on. You've never yeah. heard the story? Uh, not from dad. Um, this is like Roosevelt. Wasn't it Teddy Roosevelt who got shot and was like, and I kept going with his speech? <laughs> I mean, supposedly he got shot and it hit like a sheaf of a speech or like a sheaf of paper in his pocket and he kept on going. Or no uh, Bob Marley, who was shot like four times to prevent him from performing. Then he went and got medical attention and performed the next day anyway. Oh, my God. Because it's powerful, I guess, right? Because Fred Hampton and his words were powerful and they rallied a lot of people. But I, I got to say, Dad, seeing Martin Luther King in person, to me, is as out of place as Jesse Plemons being the only white dude and the whitest dude ever at the rally 
when uh, Hampton is speaking <laughs> and like do like blocking <laughs> eyes with uh, with O'Neill. The half-hearted fist pump. So he was awkward. Doing. It's like nobody looked at that dude and was like, "What are you doing here?" Uh, but why was he being so creepy at the rally? Like, was he trying to make some kind of point to Lakeith? Yeah, at that point, O'Neill had hung up on him after he said, you know, I'm done. I got it. Hampton, I got the job done. Hampton's in prison for better or worse. I'm I'm out of here. I'm not doing this for you anymore. And he's like, no, that's not the way it works. Your indentured servitude lasts for X amount of years, the amount of years that his prison sentence originally was proposed to be. And he hung up the phone. So he tracked him. He said, I will try. I will hunt you down. And he did to the rally. And uh, was like giving him the stink eye. Like, I got you now. But nobody gave him the stink eye. At least they set up that Frank was trying to unite a rainbow coalition, right? So it's not like he wasn't trying to recruit and inspire even that crazy white supremacist group or however they're classified. You know, the people who are like, we're proud of our Southern heritage. He wanted to unite all peoples who were marginalized. But that seems also very important because that was the first time where I felt like O'Neill was really, truly committed to the cause. And I, and maybe it was because he was doing it, he was putting on a show in defiance of Plemons, who was there at the rally. But it seemed to me that that was the moment where I thought, OK, this isn't just a cover. He yep. really believes in this mission. I, maybe because he was turning against the FBI and realizing how much they were manipulating him or trying to use him. He did, you know, they're they're trying to be buddy-buddy, as they typically do. And uh, he's like, hey, you're going to go to prison unless you do what we say. But then once you make the switch and you're on their side, quote-unquote, or you're acting on their behalf, they're like, how's it going, buddy? Have a cigarette. Here's some money. Do you need any anything? How you doing? You know, and, and trying to take care of him in this fake way. Whereas he was becoming part of the movement that he was originally sent to infiltrate. He kind of understood how firmly his place was was established in that and how uneven his footing was with the FBI. By all accounts, in real life, O'Neill actually looked up to the Plemons character as a father figure. They had a real rapport. He went to his house, had dinners with them, met met the family, met the kids in this weird codependent relationship. But you got to remember, O'Neill was 19 years old when this all happened. To look at Lakeith Stanfield, who's 29, it's just absurd that this kid was being investigated by the FBI, was partnering with them, was infiltrating a, uh, an organization that had weapons and and all the stuff about uh, Sam's and the murder of the other rat was all true. Like, they tortured and killed a dude in Black Panther headquarters for being an undercover spy. That's heavy. Shaka King, the director of Judas and the Black Messiah, said that it was like a Trojan horse as... We're going to deliver this story about Fred Hampton and O'Neill and this departed style sort of uh, undercover cop mystery. And in doing so, teach people about Fred Hampton and the Black Panther movement in the 60s and how this movie sort of holds hands with history. I mean, we touched on J. Edgar Hoover, who I didn't know was J. Edgar Hoover for a good part of the time. Also tying played by uh, Martin Sheen. Right. Tying it to the departed. Uh, Emmett Till, MLK, all this stuff happened in the background and it substantiates it. It puts it into literally perspective and historical context. It was a great vehicle for revealing a story to me that I didn't have awareness of until this point. So in, in the vein of many films that we've reviewed, I'm thankful for 
Judas and the Black Messiah. And I think it was worth the time that I put into looking into it a little bit further, the time that we put into this review, exploring some of its themes and intentions or the character's intentions. Obviously, a film that's very timely. Very timely. It's like the volcano slash Dante's Peak. It's like the Armageddon slash Deep Impact. It's one of two Fred Hampton movies this year. Yep. The Trial of the Chicago 7. Both Golden Globe winners. People see a good story and everyone else says, hey, they're doing a volcano movie. Hey, they're doing a Fred Hampton movie. Let's jump on that. And it's kind of a race <laughs> to where all of a sudden that's all the rage. I know you don't give the Golden Globes a lot of credit, but... Do you think that Daniel Kaluuya's Golden Globe for his performance as Fred Hampton was was merited? Look, all the glory to Daniel Kaluuya for his Golden Globe win for Best Actor for Judas and the Black Messiah. I feel like Lakeith Stanfield is the real standout here. He's so expressive and he has so much depth and range. It, it was unexpected for me. I first kind of glimpsed him in uh, in Uncut Gems and then and then in uh, Knives Out, even though I think I saw Knives Out first, and there was such a contrast. And then to find out that he was in Get Out, as you know, along with Daniel Kaluuya, and Daniel Kaluuya is fine. I'm not sure he had the fiery oratory presence that Fred Hampton needed. Uh, it seems like he was pushing it, but that doesn't mean that Fred Hampton was a built-in speaker. You know, he just had an agenda and the uh, the smarts and the wits to execute that agenda. But Daniel Kaluuya didn't seem to stand out to me until I heard some of his interviews. And while I've seen several movies that he's been in, it wasn't until now that I found out that he was British. And not just British, but very British. And I was like, wow. And so I went back and watched some of the speeches. And one of two things are happening here. One, he worked very hard and was meticulous with his voice coach and really trying to nail down this, you know, all, to me, sort of elusive accent of Chicago of a black guy in the 60s, or he did his best impression of Bernie Mac and one of the two. Either way, <laughs> he did it really well. I'm saying that it's hard for me to see him as the the presence when there's so much emotion on Lakeith Stansfield's face and he conveys so much without saying a word. I'm not sure that Daniel has that presence. He seems stand standoffish to me, but I think he worked very hard and I think his, his Golden Globe win, which doesn't mean was well-deserved. <laughs> I feel like we both kind of recognized Lakeith Stanfield around the same time, or maybe I had kind of recognized him and then you were like, oh yeah, obviously. And I kind of took some a little bit of pride being like he was my own private little discovery. Uh -huh. And then I was talking to Celia about Judas and the Black Messiah. And I was like, yeah, Lakeith Stanfield, like I love him. He's the best. And she's like, oh my gosh, I loved him on Atlanta and on this and on that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> so he's like been around she's like yeah he's huge and I was like oh okay yeah I mean of course I haven't seen Atlanta but I thought he was like this person that was going to break out in a huge way but he already has I feel like Lakeith looking at his face it's a window inside him and you can get a lot just from his look and maybe that's something that I uh, project on him like Will Ferrell you just look at that dude long enough and you're going to start laughing or Bill Murray <laughs> And so maybe it's just me, but I feel like it all comes together where he is paying his dues and now comes into uh, an unarguably starring role, although I suspect Daniel Kaluuya will get a lot of the praise this year, finding himself as a central figure in a big movie with a lot of attention on it with a timely subject, and hopefully it will get him the recognition he deserves. Lakeith Stanfield's O'Neill is the main character of this film. And, uh, and, and he gets top billing. He is the Judas. 
Right. It's Judas and the Black Messiah. It's not the Black Messiah and Judas. Is that what you mean? Yes. That was a joke. Walk, 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 walk. So let's get meta on this film, shall we? Do it. Let's talk about the stuff that sucked in this movie. Yeah. Because, man, that music really annoyed me. Totally forgettable to me. What was it, what was it like? Remind me. It wasn't forgettable, but the subtitles said it was light jazz. And then later it was ominous music, but the cues felt identical to me. And then from the very top where he is getting out of the car and he's walking into the pool hall where he's going to play his hustle as an FBI, fake FBI guy in order to steal the car. And it was like, it was like jazz kazoo. And it was very loud (laughs) and very annoying. And it bugged me. And I was like, oh, man, I I bet they were like, man, this and the music in this movie is going to be in your face. And it just... I didn't like it. You know what? It was very um, Trial of the Chicago 7 in that sense. There was this huge, long montage, just like in Trial, where there's this really distracting music underlaying the whole thing. And it's and it's and it's for a long time. Right. Or am I conflating the two movies? Maybe. But it's just the whole time. To me, it was noticeable and way too hot. So this was the strangest possible, I think, alternate universe reunion for Get Out. Where you had Daniel Kaluuya, obviously, and Lakeith Stanfield, and Lil Ray Howery, who came around, who played the FBI guy who brought him the uh, sedative or the poison. Oh, yeah. And so those three, I was like, this can't be a coincidence, right? And I was looking for Jordan Peele's name, and it was just nowhere. Everyone's interconnected. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, how the least likely people... I find out are connected. And I'm like, and it like blows my mind. It's like, you can't assume that anybody doesn't know somebody. Yep. You know what blew my mind in interconnectedness? Jesse Plemons, Mr. Kirsten Dunst. Why is that weird? Wait, Jesse Plemons is married to Kirsten Dunst? Why is that weird? That shouldn't be weird. And yet it's the weirdest thing ever. You're freaking (laughs) out right now. Why? Because he, because he, I mean, I guess... No way! I mean, this is, see, this is exactly what I am saying. Thank you for proving my point. (laughs) Like, never in a million years would I have connected them. What? I mean, he's kind of pudgy. He's kind of soft, and he plays doltish characters. She's a little sharp and small and... Okay, first of all, (laughs) I think he got chunky in his role for The Irishman. And Jesse Plemons, Todd on Breaking Bad, is suddenly finding himself in all these, in this diverse array of movies. And maybe he's like Chris Pratt, suddenly in demand. He plays really complex characters, like who on the surface seem kind of dumb, but who, but there's a lot going on under the surface. There's a lot of calculation and manipulation and, and also he's kind of likable, but kind of gross. Kind of like Martin Sheen in this movie. (laughs) So he's a FBI agent. He's doing his job. Doesn't excuse what he perpetrated on a moral level. But in that scene with Martin Sheen as, I guess, Hoover, were we supposed to feel bad for Roy Mitchell, for Jesse Plemons' character? Were we supposed to sympathize with him because he was stuck between a rock and a hard place? Or this is another one of those examples where I was like, I can't get my footing in this film. How am I supposed to feel? Maybe I'm supposed to have very conflicted, complex emotions like I'm sure the O'Neill character constantly had. But were we supposed to feel bad for him in that scene? I'm not sure it matters. I would argue to say that this movie's stance is black, good, white, bad. But obviously there's more to it than that. 
but Hoover was portrayed, and maybe this is this is not the first time, was maniacal and angry and had real agendas and was just a force to be reckoned with. And if you were a subordinate, you know, you do your job or you refuse at your peril. And so the Plemons character, yeah, was, he was just the foot soldier. He was the enforcer for J. Edgar Hoover's rantings, and he never left the office and never changed facial expressions because of all <laughs> well, that How makeup. could he under all that makeup? Right. But I think the Jesse Plemons character, he didn't have real moral compunctions one way or the other. He was just like, yeah, he could have at any time said, look, this isn't my deal. You know, you either do this or you go to prison. I either do this or I get fired. I'm just saying, are you going to do it or not? And he was like, yeah, how you doing? And they met in restaurants with their little overcoats on and junk. And Jesse Plemons was kind of on the outside. So much so that he was like, hey, I want you to kill Hampton. He was like, what? He's like, yeah, kill him. In the way that Jesse Plemons can, in the creepy Todd way. Or he's like, you know, just put a thing in his drink and, and he'll go to sleep. And then, you know, we'll meet for, you know, tomorrow. You want ice cream? And so I honestly don't think he was emotionally invested. I think he was annoyed when he showed up and Lakeith was kind of chanting along with the rally. And he was like, I'm here and I see you. Don't, you're messing up. I had to get dressed and come all the way down here to wrangle you. You know what I mean? I didn't feel like his character had a lot of emotional depth. And I think in that way, he was meant to be sort of one note and the enforcer. And it's hard to know how to feel. I just know how Lakeith felt. And I'm maybe I'm projecting, but I feel like when O'Neill and Mitchell would meet, I was so focused on Lakeith Stanfield that it felt like Mitchell was never really in frame. I felt like I didn't see his face a lot. I feel like he was just the arm. He was the instrument between Hoover and this poor 19-year-old kid who was asked to do horrible things. But going back to what you were talking about, how you felt in this movie, yeah, it's hard to know how to feel. You want to be delicate with your uh, sort of assessment of the civil rights movements because it was and is a touchy subject. It's hard to pin down what is necessary. I thought, well, you guys aren't doing giving yourselves a lot of opportunity to be recognized for the operation that you're setting yourself up to be when you have these huge young gun style gunfights with cops outside of your compound, right? Hmm. I mean, yes, they preached the virtues of the upstanding black community and feeding kids and, and no one left behind and all that stuff. But when it came down to it, they were ready to shoot and die and they did. And so there, there was commentary all over the place. And when Hampton walks into the Southern Loyalists little meeting with their rebel flag, he actually, he was met with some opposition. Obviously, there's going to be tension there, but it was arguably less tension than when he visited the other Black Panther chapter because nobody drew any guns. There weren't any harsh words and, and people almost died in the other rally. Right. Even though on a surface level, you'd think that they'd be on the same side, quote unquote right. side. And you knew that he was walking into trouble when he would go talk to the Southerners, who definitely weren't on his side. But that speaks to his desire to, as you said, unify people to get them on the same page because it's not about the fight. Hmm. And so maybe the Black Panther organization was certainly militant, but I'm not sure how effective this stance is. Where they're like, we want to be peaceful, and if we got to use guns to do it, that's what we're going to do. It's a difficult message to process, but I also wasn't alive at the time of these events. And they were certainly facing black people and the Black Panthers a lot of oppression and a lot of judgment. And, and maybe they had to act accordingly, arm themselves accordingly. I'm not sure how effective 
that is, was then or would be today. How much of being maybe turned off by their approach is, is tone policing, right? And feeling like, you know, if they only just presented themselves better and more as more accommodating, then maybe we could, you know, get on board with their mission and how much of it is resistance due to white guilt. Not, not fully understanding the socio-political context, and how much of it is just Hampton being kind of a contradictory character. Yeah, but going to a larger picture, Hoover felt like the Black Panthers were a threat. He felt the civil rights movement was a threat. He not only kept uh, tabs on Hampton, but also on Muhammad Ali as being a Muslim agitator and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And I think he was a scared white dude who viewed them as a threat to the establishment, plain and simple. Imagine if I was an angry, displaced, disenfranchised, scared young black kid who was stealing cars, trying to get some kind of hustle together to not end up and, you know, trying to avoid jail and to live life and to be scared to death of authority figures, of the police, uh, to have no possibility at higher level education. The likelihood that I would grab a gun, keep a gun and get involved with an institution that's looking towards, to, that's preaching a better life for me, who are all armed. It would be so easy. It's impossible to be able to judge the position that some of these people were in. To sum it up, you could understand why O'Neill got himself into the situation he got himself into? To an extent. I'm saying that I, I can't speak with authority to his position in life for his age and the time he was and the color of his skin. I just know how easy it would be for me to fall into dumb traps. It's way more <laughs> advantageous position, sociopolitically, economically, I guess. And for the color of my skin, I'm not going to be bothered on a daily basis, or at least I don't have that fear all the time. The criminal justice and policing system is was messed up and corrupt and, and is still in many ways. And it's a entirely different paradigm if there is like literally no place that's safe in your society. No more evident than in the final raid scene. There's speculation whether or not it's true that O'Neill poisoned Hampton. He never admitted to it. Uh, he felt guilt about it. As the prologue said, he died by suicide. But they didn't have to kill him. They had him in their power and they could have arrested him. I mean, already the way he was arrested was bullshit. This stupid ice cream thing. These facts aren't contested that he was sedated and that they found barbiturates in his system during the autopsy. And he was shot during the raid in his bed. And the cop, you know, witnesses are on record saying, well, he's, you know, he's good and dead now or whatever. It's just nobody was on his side. None of the powers that be, the authorities, were on his side. And he had real reason to fear in the same way they feared him, they, that they regarded him as a threat, regardless of what he was doing. Such a threat that they had to sedate him before raiding his home and killing him. And then killed him while he was sedated. I mean, right. I looked at the, I, I get it. You trump up charges on all, we've seen it the other side of the coin, right? We've seen like, look, look, let's, we got to bring Capone in. What do we got against him? Nothing that's going to stick. I don't care. I don't care whether, you know, like the, like the departed, I could care less whether or not the charges stick. The point is to get him off the streets. And so that what they did for, uh, they, for Capone, they did the taxes for, uh, Hampton, they did this ice cream thing, which came out to that he stole from like a good humor truck 
or something. $71 of ice cream. And you're like, okay, well, that's, I guess that's feasible. Except when you consider that in the 60s when this happened, an ice cream bar that they're talking about was 10 cents. And in an interview, he said, look, I know I'm a big, big dude, but I'm not like 700 ice cream bars big. <laughs> what good humor truck has 700 ice cream bars in it? I wonder if $70 was like the grand theft threshold or something. <laughs> Because the idea that they made the stick and sent him to prison for years because they claimed he stole 700 ice cream bars. Like, even the public would have acknowledged, yeah, I remember that. That was ice cream day where they passed it out to everyone, right? What good, what truck has 700 ice cream bars in the freeze waiting to be stolen? They wait. It was like, oh, yeah, this is ice cream bar transfer day. This is when the feeder truck feeds all the other ones and this is the big score guys let's go in for the ice cream i didn't dive quite so deeply into that one but good it's point just, it's just sad it's terribly sad and the filmmaker certainly didn't want us to miss that right not only did he have an ignoble evilly perpetrated death but he also had a girl with a baby. And that sucks. Like, that's like, if there was something that I was clear about how I should feel, it was it was that. That this was a, a crazy injustice. And Deborah Johnson, his girl, was just left to pick up the pieces. Eight months pregnant when Hampton was killed in his bed. And that's, re that's really sad. I got to say, I've laughed more during this review than a lot of the comedies re we've reviewed. <laughs> And I don't know why. <laughs> Obviously, the ice cream thing is so ridiculous that it's funny. And 50 years on, we can examine this with some level of, of removal. But it's all really sad. And maybe it stems from not exactly knowing how to feel. Yeah, I mean, it could be a coping mechanism. It could be a release of the tension that this movie brings up. You know, a tension and a conflict that's best exemplified by the O'Neill character who had to have been in constant dissonance with himself, so much so that when he had to take a look at himself, decided to take his life. Yeah, whereas Dominic Fishback's Deborah Johnson character didn't. She's still a member of the Black Panther Party, as well as uh, Hampton Jr., who is the chairman of that same party. She persisted. Dominic Fishback, she was the other component. She's been around for a while, but I didn't recognize her. And I thought for the role that she played, she didn't play the shrill wife, or while she was poetic, the overly poetic, dreamy figure, the idealized figure. She was angry when he was hauled off to prison, and she had to deal with the kids, and she had to reckon her place with him and as part of the party and without him moving forward with his kid. And I think that uh, Dominic Fishback's portrayal of the character was understated, no less appreciable than, than Lakeith Stanfield's. I think she did a really good job in this role. And she's been recognized for her performance. I don't know that they had a lot of chemistry, and their courting was pretty awkward, probably because Hampton was hesitant, and not necessarily because he was shy, like she said, but because he was on a mission and was always going to kind of put the cause first, not necessarily before his girl and before his family, but... <laughs> he had some other things on his mind. Frank, I, I think that she served to show and remind us that Hampton was human. And there was a lot at, at stake for him in addition to his more public work and service and to underscore the tragedy of his death. I think she was I think her character was was effective 
in this movie story-wise. I, I guess I just didn't really buy their chemistry so much. We know that Daniel Kaluuya is a strong actor. We saw it in Get Out, where he he got that role, nailed his audition. He was able to cry on command, and, and he definitely has an expressive face, and you could read his face. So this one, I think, was a really strong performance. It was just a different kind of performance. It was more reserved, and the open, expressive performance was Lakeith's, and uh, they were both really strong. Dominic Fishback, I think, was a pleasant surprise. Shaka King, this is his only, only his second full-length feature after newly weeds 2013 which i did not see but these two figures compared to judas and the messiah were noteworthy and part of history and have a couple movies based around at least one of them this year and yet were 19 and like 21 years old which is absurd to me that they would find themselves in the middle of a cultural movement and be at the forefront of that and they were just kids as like teenagers, it's ridiculous. So Judas and the Black Messiah, it seems like Judas and the Black Messiah isn't one to miss. I feel like it would be disingenuous to be like, I love this movie, even though I didn't fully understand the implications or I felt some kind of way about this or that. So I wouldn't give it a totally, I would give it an all right. It was interesting and it was informative about a subject that I'm not sure that I could ever be fully on top of. Not a popcorn flick, but pretty fun to talk about. Yep. And so an all right from Wes and a good from Iris. That's our review on Judas and the Black Messiah. Thank you for listening. Keep an eye out for Judas and the Black Messiah at this year's Oscars. And let us know what you think about the movie, 818-835-0473 or whatever movies at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Follow us on Instagram. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get podcasts. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Electric Acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together, we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Electric acid.